0: section five of seven roman statesmen of the later republic by charles Oman. this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by pamela Nagami. chapter three gaius gracchus part two doubtless gaius did not foresee the full harvest of scandals which was destined to spring up from his treatment of the law courts but he must have known that he was putting power into the hands of a class that could not be trusted. For the results, therefore, he must take the responsibility. Meanwhile he obtained the immediate profit that he desired. The equites supported the tribune when votes were required, and received from him in return whatever they wished. How harmful to the state were these things which they wished may be seen from the case of the Asiatic taxes since their annexation in b c one thirty three or rather since their rescue from the hands of the rebel aristonicus in b c one twenty nine the cities of asia had been paying to rome a fixed tribute of moderate amount but the knights loved the system of tax-farming and suggested to gaius that it might be introduced into this wealthiest of all the provinces he consented and by his law de provincia asia Cancoribus locanda instituted a most detestable form of it not only was the tithe system imposed on asia and the administration of it farmed out but it was ordained that the bidding for the tithes should take place before the censors at rome not at pergamus or ephesus and that the whole revenue of the province should be contracted for on block. The object of this strange arrangement was that provincial competition for the contracts might be excluded, firstly by the fact that the auction was held in Italy, and secondly by the enormous capital required, for only a syndicate of Roman millionaires could afford to contemplate the tremendous sums that had to be dealt with, when the land revenues of the whole of the two hundred cities of Asia were handled in a single contract by means of gaius's law the old kingdom of pergamus the last region of the hellenic east which had preserved its prosperity was reduced in a single generation to a deplorable state of misery the best commentary on the new system of government is that when in the year b c 88 a foreign enemy entered asia the whole countryside rose like one man in his favour and massacred in a single day the eighty thousand roman traders officials and tax collectors who dwelt among them the great tribune was re-elected for a second term of office without any difficulty and his work in b c 122 was a continuation of that of the previous twelve months several of the laws of which we have already spoken only came to full fruition in the latter year gaius was now thoroughly well established in power as the people's prime minister he was commencing to add a whole bundle of standing offices to his main title of tribune being triumvir on the agrarian board chief commissioner of roads, and official superintendent of the new colonies that were to be founded plutarch speaking in a somewhat exaggerated strain asserts that he was occupying a quasi-royal position that he had monoxicatis iscus but he forgets to point out That he was destitute of one most important element of power. He had no regular armed force at his back, only the fickle bands of the urban multitude. The Roman constitution, as time was to show, could only be overthrown by an imperator with legions at his heels. The orator, who had but his ready tongue and his chance mob of partisans, was really unequal to the task of upsetting the old regime but meanwhile his power and activity were very terrifying to the senate those who most feared the man were struck with his amazing industry and the faculty with which he dispatched the most diverse kinds of business he lived in the centre of a sort of court frequented equally by foreign ambassadors architects engineers military men and philosophers he had business with all these classes receiving them all with urbanity and surprised them all by his interest in and mastery of their various provinces of knowledge it was easy for his enemies to say that there was a royal court already established in rome with nothing wanting save the diadem during his second tribunate, gaius was engaged both in completing his legislation in behalf of the equites and in developing his great colonial schemes especially that for the establishment of the new city that was to be called Junonia on the site of Carthage. But he was also launching out on to the development of another item of the democratic programme. He wished to carry out that liberal extension of the citizenship to the Italian allies, which had been growing more and more of a necessity during the last fifty years. Tiberius Gracchus, if we may trust Velius, had broached the idea in B.C. 133. Fulvius Flaccus had certainly brought it to the front in B.C. 125, with no result save the unfortunate revolt of Frigellae. But Gaius had much more favourable opportunities than either his brother or Flaccus, for he had secured a much more complete control over the Comitia than either of them had ever possessed. The project was one which was eminently deserving of support. In former days the Roman people had been fairly generous with the franchise, not only had all the latin and etruscan districts around the city been granted the full citizenship one after another but there were ways provided in which individual members of allied states further afield might become incorporated in the body of roman burgesses but this wise liberality had gradually gone out of fashion just as roman citizenship grew more and more valuable owing to the ever-increasing profits of empire It became more and more difficult to obtain. No new territory in Latium or Etruria had been taken into the state boundaries since b c 188, and it was growing much harder for the individual citizen of an allied community to slip into the burgess body. The fact was that the Romans in ancient days, when fighting for existence, had been eager to strengthen themselves by multiplying their numbers. Now that they had acquired an empire, they were less eager to share their advantages with others. The knowledge that discontent at their niggardliness was ever growing more lively among the Italian states had not yet begun to alarm the ordinary Roman, whether optimate or democrat. The city rabble were just as unconcerned about it as the most purblind reactionary in the Senate. Gaius Gracchus, therefore, had to convert his own party to the policy of liberal treatment for the allies. It was true that his brother may have advocated their cause, and that others among the leaders of the party, notably the energetic but unstable Fulvius Flaccus, were convinced of its righteousness. But the weapon with which Gaius had to win his victories was the urban multitude, the one constant element in the composition of the Comitia he thought that he could carry it with him even when he was advocating measures which were not directly and obviously profitable to itself indeed he imagined that he had bought it for ever belly and soul by the gift of the corn dole he was so far right that a great portion of the populace was ready to stick to him through thick and thin and to vote for whatever bill he might choose to bring forward unfortunately for himself and for rome he was to discover that the whole body was not so loyal, and that men who could be bribed once to vote for the democratic side might be influenced on another occasion by equally corrupt inducements held out by the enemy. Gaius was always styling the urban multitude the people. He was destined to find that it might be truer to call them the rabble the very moderate and statesmanlike form in which gaius proposed to deal with the franchise question was to bestow the full citizenship on the latins and the rights hitherto held by the latins on the remainder of the italian allies the latins now represented not the old 30 cities of the latin league which had long been taken into the roman state but the numerous colonies with latin rights that is the us canubii and us cumercii which were scattered all over italy they only wanted the power to vote in the comitia to make them full citizens the practical as opposed to the political advantages of the status were already in their possession on the other hand the main body of the italian allies were to receive the commercial and civil privileges hitherto confined to the latins but were not to be introduced into the tribes or permitted to swamp the public assembly by their enormous numbers no doubt Gaius contemplated the arrival of the day when they too might become romans but he had no wish to hurry matters and intended to bring about the complete Romanization of italy by gradual emancipation only after a longer or shorter training as latins would the multitudes of central and southern italy be permitted to obtain the full franchise all this was prudent moderate and far-sighted but unfortunately there was little in the scheme to rouse enthusiasm among the more sordid members of the democratic party the mass of demoralised urban voters who formed the habitual majority in ordinary meetings of the comitia in their ignorant selfishness they looked upon the matter from a very narrow point of view the individual roman citizen they thought would suffer if the number of his equals were increased there would be more hands among which the bribes of the would-be consul in praetor and the public distribution of money and food made by the state would have to be divided the consul Fannius, though he had been elected by the assistance of gracchus himself led the opposition he put the question in a nutshell when he asked the multitude whether they had reflected that by passing such a bill they would soon have the latins elbowing them out of their places in the comitia crowding them out of the circus and theatre and eating up their corn this sordid and cynical appeal went to the heart of the plebeians and the majority of them soon showed that they were ready to refuse support in this matter to the leader who vainly believed that he had purchased their perpetual allegiance while the franchise question was still in an early stage a new figure appeared upon the scene to the great perplexity of gracchus this was a certain marcus livius drusus a tribune of whom little had hitherto been known he did not attempt to resist Gaius by the method of mere stolid opposition which octavius had used ten years before against the reformer's elder brother his plan was one which had often been tried in Greek politics. The counter-demagogue had been a well-known figure at Athens, though he was as yet unfamiliar at Rome. Drusus professed to be even more devoted to the people than his colleague, and to be ready to go yet farther in the paths of innovation. Only on two questions, that of the founding of colonies beyond the sea, and that of granting the franchise to the Italians, did he profess to differ from him, of both these measures he disapproved but he had his own substitutes ready both for propitiating his allies and for providing land for the would-be colonists with the object then of showing that he was a truer and more liberal friend of the people than Gaius himself livius drusus announced his intention of bringing forward a whole series of popular measures perhaps the most prominent of these was a huge scheme for colonisation inside italy instead of choosing only two places with particularly favourable sites as gracchus had done he announced that he would establish no less than twelve colonies in the peninsula each of them to hold no less than three thousand citizens the scheme was wholly impractical for these were to be agricultural and not trading centres and agriculture as we have already seen was ruined beyond redemption but the populace had not yet grasped the fact and the plan seemed to them far more attractive than anything that Gaius had proposed equally popular and equally futile was another bill which was to turn all the farms which had already been distributed by the land commissions into the private property of their occupiers tiberius gracchus had made a great point of imposing a rent upon them in order to remind the farmers that they were the tenants of the state and not full freeholders he had also prohibited them from selling their land for he had feared that they would be prone to dispose of their holdings at the first bad season if they were given the chance so that the latifundia would in a short time be reconstituted it is probable that ten years of unprofitable farming had already disgusted great numbers of the settlers of b c 133 and 132 that they were now wishing to throw up the holdings for which they had once clamoured so loudly. At any rate, there is no doubt that Drusus's proposal to make the land alienable and to abolish the modest rent imposed by Tiberius acquired a certain cheap popularity. There were other bills brought forward at the same time, of which we have no accurate details. One was intended to propitiate the Allies for being refused the franchise. It provided that latin soldiers should no longer be liable to the punishment of scourging by roman officers and probably their status in other ways was to be brought nearer to that of their comrades who possessed the full citizenship in proposing each of his laws drusus took great care to point out to the people that he was acting with the full consent and approbation of the senate he wished to produce the impression that popular legislation could be procured from other sources than the democratic party and succeeded in his aim. The majority of the urban multitude were too stupid to see that when the competition was ended by the removal or death of Gracchus, their noble friends would relapse into their former state of apathy as to the needs of the people. It has been suggested by some historians that Drusus was not a deliberate charlatan playing a part but a real though misguided enthusiast who was unconsciously made the tool of the senate it has been pointed out that several of the laws which he proposed in b c 122 were reintroduced a generation later by his son who was a genuine democrat of the most enthusiastic sort and it is suggested that the elder drusus believed in his own panacea and passed it on as a sacred secret to his son and heir but on the whole it is safer to believe the roman historians when they tell us that the colleague of gracchus was well aware of what he was doing and had no more worthy aim than to undermine his rival's position by outbidding him in the market of popular favour the waning power of gaius over the multitude was shown most clearly by the fate of his bill for the enfranchisement of the latins when it was brought forward drusus announced that he should veto it there was no explosion of popular wrath, for the fact was that the majority of the multitude were apathetic on the point, or even held that the good things of empire had better be distributed among a few than among many Roman citizens. Gaius saw no opportunity of assailing his colleague. He made no attempt to demolish him, as his brother of old had demolished Octavius. Public feeling would have been against him if he had tried, instead of starting a furious agitation on behalf of the italians as his friend and colleague fulvius flaccus proposed he went off to africa to superintend the foundation of his new colony of junonia thus the democratic party in the city was left in the temporary charge of flaccus this was unfortunate for the ex-consul was a man equally devoid of tact and of prudence and prone to plunge into profitless violence when freed from the restraints imposed by his more statesmanlike friend gaius probably supposed that nothing would commend him more surely to the people than the site of the new carthaginian colony inaugurated with all possible pomp and splendour and flourishing from the first as it was bound to do if only it obtained a fair start he marked out the site on an even larger scale than the rubrian law had named and made a great parade of assembling colonists from all over italy apparently permitting latins as well as romans to send in their names all the proper ceremonies were carried out the flag was planted the furrow driven round an enormous space of ground and the boundary stones set up when however gracchus returned from africa to rome he found that his demonstration had completely missed fire the most absurd rumours had been put about by his opponents a legend had cropped up that scipio had solemnly cursed the site of carthage when he captured it in b c 146 and that nothing could prosper on such unlucky ground it was said that a gale had torn down the standard which gracchus had erected a fact quite possible in itself but rendered less likely by the additional garnishment of the story which said that the boundary stones of the new colony had been dug up at night by wolves if wolves there were, they must clearly have been two-legged Roman wolves of the Optimate breed. Nevertheless, these silly tales seem to have had their effect and to have loosened the hold of Gaius on the Comitia. When the tribunicial elections came on and he stood for the third time, he failed to be chosen. It is said that he had really a majority of votes, but that Drusus or some other tribune who presided at the poll made a fraudulent and unjust return that such a thing should have been possible shows that at least the suffrages of the people must have been much divided for if gaius had possessed his former ascendancy, no one would have dared juggle with the votes gracchus was appalled with this misadventure he bore the disappointment with great impatience and when he saw his adversaries laughing told them with an air of insolence that they should soon be laughing on the wrong side of their mouths Meanwhile, he had only a short time left in which the invaluable tribunicial position was still his own. On the 10th of December, B.C. 122, he would become a private person again and would not only lose his power of legislation, but become liable to prosecution for any illegal acts which his enemies might choose to allege against him. The last months of his office seem to have been spent in a bitter personal struggle with Drusus. Each produced strings of popular laws to tempt the appetite of the people, and Gaius had the disappointment of seeing himself outbid by a rival whose main advantage was that he was prepared to bring forward projects, possible or impossible, with no thought of the consequences. As a good Greek scholar, Gracchus must have recognized that he had fallen into the unenviable position of Cleon and the knights of Aristophanes. His stewardship was about to be taken from him, and he would soon be obliged to give an account of all his doings. At last, the fatal day came round, and Gaius ceased to be the sacrosanct representative of the Roman people and became once more a private citizen. It is probable that even if he had kept quiet, his adversaries would now have found some excuse for falling upon him. Like his brother Tiberius, twelve years before, he had made too many enemies but he did not give them the opportunity of leaving him alone within a few days of the coming of the new year b c 121 he was engaged in bitter civil strife with them for he had still plenty of partisans at his back the better men of the democratic party still believed in him and among the multitude there were many whose profound hatred of the senate and all its works had led them to distrust the gifts of drusus Most important of all, there was a lively agitation outside Rome. The Latins were bitterly vexed that the citizenship, which had been dangled before them for the second time, had now been again withdrawn from their reach. Their old friend Fulvius Flaccus got into communication with them and assured them that he had not forgotten them and still hoped to defend their cause. But organisation was needed to bring their forces to bear and of organising power there seems to have been little or none on the democratic side. The moment that the new magistrates of B.C. 121 were installed in office, an effort was made by the optimates to rescind as much as they dared of the Grocken legislation. The equites were too strong to be lightly meddled with, and the laws passed in their favor were left alone. It was still necessary to keep the urban multitude divided, so no attempt was made to touch the corn dole any hint of such a design would have thrown the whole mass back into the arms of gracchus it was accordingly against the colonial scheme that the optimates opened their batteries formal representations were made to the augurs that the omens at the foundation of junonia had been unfavourable and all the stories about the gale the broken flagstaff and the uprooted boundary stones were brought forward the augurs made the reply that was required the auspices of junonia had been most unfavourable and clearly showed the anger of the gods at the unhallowed attempt to build upon the cursed soil. Accordingly, the consul Opimius, who assumed the lead in all the proceedings against Gracchus, took the opinion of the Senate on the question whether it would not be right to annul the Rubrian law and disestablish the new colony. The fathers fell in with his design and granted him an auctoritas for the introduction of an act of repeal it was accordingly brought before the people by the tribune marcus minutius this brought Gaius to the front the scheme for transmarine colonisation was very dear to him in it as he believed lay the true remedy for the economic distress of the roman people when gracchus and fulvius flaccus says appian discerned that their great project was to be thwarted They became like madmen and ran about declaring that all the stories about the evil omens were lies invented by the senate they announced their intention of opposing the act of repeal by every means in their power and began when it was too late to organize their partisans for the fray this was precisely what their enemies had hoped if they could be goaded into any act of violence They could be accused of treason and doomed to suffer the same lot that had fallen on Tiberius Gracchus and his followers twelve years before. Neither party made any attempt to disguise their intention of using force if it should become necessary. The optimates secretly armed their clients and slaves. On the other hand, Flaccus sent the word round rural Italy that strong arms were needed at Rome. It is said that hundreds of his partisans disguised as labourers came up to the city on the day when the bill was to be brought forward and that there were more allies than citizens among these able-bodied visitors gaius appears to have disliked this open appeal to violence he felt that the democrats would be putting themselves in the wrong if they began the fray and seems to have discouraged his followers by his fervid appeals to them not to take the offensive but the die was cast the more enthusiastic democrats were determined to fight and came down to the assembly armed with daggers and staves as if a conflict was absolutely certain they were so far right and their leader was so far wrong that in the present strained situation of affairs there was no hope of a peaceful issue on the day of voting the optimates and the democrats faced each other more like two armies than two orderly political factions. On each side the lethal weapons were barely disguised beneath the broad folds of the togas. The only doubt was whether the enemies or the partisans of Gracchus would strike the first blow. As a matter of fact, the democrats put themselves in the wrong by opening the battle by a wanton murder. The consul Opimius, had opened the proceedings by the usual sacrifice in the porch of the Capitoline temple. When he had done, one of his servants, a certain Quintus Antullius, who was carrying away the entrails of the victim, rudely pushed through the front rank of the Democrats, crying, Stand off, ye bad citizens, and make way for honest men. It is said that he emphasized his insulting words by making a gesture of contempt in the very face of Gracchus. At this, Gaius gave him a fierce look, whereupon an overzealous follower stepped forward and stabbed the man through and through with a dagger. Antulius fell dead between the two parties with the sacred entrails still in his hand. Prepared for strife as all those present had been, they were yet shocked by this sacrilegious murder. No melee followed, but the enemies stood gazing upon each other, and no one dared to strike a second blow. At this moment a sudden thunderstorm burst over the capital, and awed by the manifest wrath of Jupiter, the whole armed multitude melted homeward in the drenching rain. The day ended without the expected battle, but blood had been shed, and the optimates were able to cast the responsibility for the commencement of civil strife upon their adversaries. It is certain that if Antullius had been left alone, the contest would merely have broken out a few minutes later, for both crowds were bent on mischief, and the most trivial incident would have sufficed to set them by the ears. Morally speaking, the guilt may be equally divided between them, for each had come down prepared to fight, and if the Democrats had not struck the first blow, the Optimates would have done so a little later. Both the consul Opimius and the headstrong Fulvius Flaccus had deliberately got ready for battle. And whatever may have been the private feelings of Gaius, it is certain that he came down armed to support his friends. His admirers have alleged that he was precipitated into civil war against his will. His detractors have quite as much to say for their view when they assert that he lost his opportunity for carrying out a coup d'état because a reckless fool struck too soon and placed his whole party at a moral disadvantage there can be no doubt that the dagger thrust dealt by this overzealous democrat ruined his party it was to little purpose that gaius went down to the forum the same afternoon and tried to explain away what had happened as a deplorable accident for which he was not responsible many who might otherwise have supported him had been profoundly shocked and it is impossible for the man who has placed himself at the head of an armed mob to disavow any connection with its atrocities. Just as Robert Emmett was responsible for the murder of Lord Kilwarden, though he may not himself have thrust a pike into the old judge, so was Gaius Gracchus responsible for the murder of Antullius. It is useless in such cases to plead blameless character and patriotic intentions. Moreover, the friends of Gaius did not even take the trouble to excuse themselves. Fulvius Flaccus, when the assembly had broken up, called together a mob of his supporters, harangued them and armed them with a store of weapons which lay in his house, for he possessed a complete arsenal of Gallic broadswords and lances, the trophies of his successful campaign of B.C. 125. He and his reckless satellites Passed the night in noise riot and carousing the ex-consul himself it is said was the first man drunk and in his cups uttered many obiter dicta most unbecoming in one who was about to plunge the city into war next morning the behaviour of gaius was very different he burst into tears on leaving the forum and shut himself up in his room gloomily pondering over the end to which two years of civic power had brought him but though he did not commit himself to any overt course of action, a great mob of his partisans gathered round his house and encamped about it all night. Another mass collected in the capital before dawn to occupy the points of vantage for the struggle, which was expected to break out in the morning. Meanwhile, Opimius and the other foes of the Democratic Party had been making much more practical preparations the consul had ordered every senator and every knight of the optimate party to provide two fully armed men he had taken command of a body of cretan mercenaries who chanced to be passing through the city and had ordered a general muster of the clients and retainers of his friends they were a formidable band and with the magistrates at their head they had the inestimable advantage of appearing to represent law and order protected by this mass of special constables the senate met next morning the consul began to lay before them the desperate state of affairs and the necessity for outlawing the democratic leaders at this moment by a preconcerted arrangement the bier of Antulius, followed by his mourning friends was borne past the doors of the senate-house the fathers rushed out and burst forth into exaggerated demonstrations of horror and sympathy. Then, flocking back to their seats, they passed the Senatus Consultum Ultimum, which empowered the consuls in the usual terms to take care that the Republic might receive no harm. Rome was thus put under martial law, and as a last formality, messengers were sent to gracchus and to fulvius flaccus bidding them repair in person to the curia in order to give an account of their doings frightened at the great armed force around the senate house the democrats had begun to concentrate on the aventine they were almost destitute of guidance for gaius was sunk in a melancholy apathy and flaccus was barely recovered from the effects of last night's debauch it was with difficulty that he could be roused at all that morning. The only intention displayed was to stand at bay on the old plebeian stronghold. No offensive action seems even to have been contemplated. But the temple of Diana and the neighboring streets were barricaded, and emissaries ran round the city calling the multitude to arms, and even promising freedom to any slaves who should join them this last anarchic proposal must have disposed of any chance that gaius might gain support among his old allies of the equestrian order the very name of a slave rising was enough to make an optimate of every man of independent means it was probably the perception of the fact that the number of their partisans on the aventine was much smaller than they had expected which led the democratic leaders to negotiate before opening hostilities When they received the message from the Senate which bade them come down and justify their actions, Gaius, it is said, seriously proposed to take his life in his hands and obey the summons. But Flaccus objected to put himself in the power of the enemy. He would only consent to send his son Quintus with a reply, in which the garrison of the Aventine offered to lay down its arms and disperse if a complete amnesty was offered to every citizen, small or great. It is said that many of the senators were not indisposed to accept these terms. Except to fanatics, anything is better than civil war. But Opimius carried a majority with him when he declared that traitors could not send ambassadors, but should come in person to surrender themselves to justice before they sued for mercy. The young Flaccus was sent back to his father and told not to come again unless he brought with him an offer of unconditional surrender after some futile debating between the leaders of the democrats the proposal to capitulate without terms was negatived and the son of flaccus was once more dispatched to the senate with a second set of offers opimius told him that he had been warned not to return and that he had forfeited any claims to be considered an ambassador he cast the young man into prison and ordered his armbands to converge upon the aventine Then he published a notice that anyone who laid down his arms before fighting began should be granted an amnesty, but that Gracchus and Fulvius were public enemies, and that whoever brought their heads to the consuls should be paid for them their actual weight in gold. The rumour of this proclamation and the sight of the Optimate bands working upwards among the streets that led to the summit of the Aventine was too much for the resolution of most of the Democrats a great many slunk off to their houses while yet it was time but enough remained to defend the barricades and for some little space there was sharp fighting between the two parties but the cretan archers so galled the democrats that ere long they gave back from their position and the assailants stormed the hilltop and burst in among them then followed a massacre no less than three thousand persons are said to have been slain and their bodies cast into the tiber Fulvius Flaccus and his elder son Marcus hid themselves in the house of a client, but when their pursuers threatened to burn down the whole street unless they were given up, an informer was promptly forthcoming. They were beheaded on the spot without form of trial. Gaius Gracchus was not found upon the Aventine. No one had seen him during the fighting. He had shut himself up in the temple of Diana and proposed to commit suicide when the barricades were forced. But two of his friends, the knights pomponius and Litorius took his dagger from him and persuaded him to fly before it was yet too late there was still a way of escape by the porta trigemina and the supplician bridge before leaving the temple gaius is said to have fallen upon his knees and with upraised hands to have prayed to the goddess that the people of rome for their ingratitude and base desertion of their friend might be slaves for ever if the story is true it well explains the mood of sullen despair which had lain heavy on his heart for the last twenty-four hours he had pushed things to extremity and then his party had melted away from him all his plans as he now saw had been futile from the first because he had mistaken the urban rabble of to-day for the ancient citizens of rome gaius and his two friends were sighted by some of the victorious optimates as they fled down toward the tiber they made what speed they could but the reformer presently stumbled and fell spraining his ankle so that he could no longer move with ease by the river gate the pursuers were nearing them thereupon pomponius bravely turned to bay and held the back for a moment at the cost of his life Litorius did as much on the Supplician bridge and by their sacrifice gaius now accompanied only by a single slave reached the suburb under the janiculum beyond the water as he hobbled on supported by his retainer the streets were full of idle spectators who shouted to him to run his best as if he were a competitor in the circus but no one gave him the least assistance though he kept calling for a horse as he went before the optimates came up he had got beyond the last houses and reached the grove of farina just outside the city he was seen to enter it but when the pursuers burst in after him they found both him and his companion lying dead. At his master's orders the slave had stabbed him to the heart, and had then turned his weapon against himself. The head of the reformer was cut off and carried to the consul, his body was cast into the Tiber, Opimius carried out his promise, and gave the bearer of the head its weight in gold, seventeen pounds, eight ounces, as tradition recorded thus miserably ended the career of the younger gracchus a man who both as a politician and as an individual was strangely compacted of strength and weakness clearly he was no single-minded enthusiast like his brother he had studied statecraft and had learnt not to be over scrupulous in his methods if indeed he was set on regenerating the people of rome he chose the strangest allies and employed the most doubtful means he must have been perfectly well aware of what he was doing when he purchased the support of the urban rabble by the gift of the corn dole and that of the greedy equites by surrendering to them the unhappy province of asia when the means are so obviously immoral one is driven into doubting the purity of the end which they are intended to subserve was gracchus really set on saving rome from the economic and constitutional perils which were sapping her strength or was he rather an ambitious politician yearning for power at all costs and eager to revenge on the senate his brother's death it is easy to read his career in either light yet each reading must be full of contradictions if we hold with mommsen that gaius was deliberately trying to make himself tyrant of rome we can easily understand all the less worthy episodes of his career the man with such an idea in his head would not have shrunk from using unworthy tools or practising any sort of political charlatanry. To purchase the aid of the rabble or the knights by bribes, to flatter the hopes of the Italians who desired the franchise, would be appropriate moves for one who aimed at repeating the career of Cipsilus or Pisistratus. But this theory leaves unexplained the reluctance which Gaius manifested at the end to engage in actual civil war the want of energy which he displayed in organizing his party for the final conflict and the melancholy apathy which he showed during the last twenty-four hours of his life if he had really aimed at supreme power such conduct could be explained by physical cowardice alone and of that not even his enemies dared to accuse him a would-be tyrant would have armed and organized bravos have attacked the senate instead of assuming the defensive and have thrown himself into the battle with frantic energy. All the doings of Gaius, on the other hand, are those of a man forced into violence against his will, and obviously doubting whether death was not preferable to the guilt of stirring up civil war. They are not the acts of one who wishes to grasp at supreme power and cares not how it is attained. On the other hand, as we have already seen, it is still more impossible to explain his career by representing him as a single-hearted friend of the people who thought nothing of himself and only aimed at regenerating the roman state ambition revenge the reckless use of unworthy methods are too easily discernible in many of his actions probably the true way of reconciling the contradictions of the life of Gaius is to realise that though he possessed many of the instincts of the tyrant and the demagogue there was also latent in him much of the ancient roman civic virtue he loved to rule he was unscrupulous in his methods he hated fiercely the optimates and all their works but at the same time he had a genuine wish to serve the state he showed it by persisting in his schemes for transmarine colonization and the enfranchisement of the italians long after they had become unpopular a mere self-seeker would have dropped them the moment that he was certain that they failed to please the rabble of the Comitia. When at last he found himself borne on irresistibly towards civil war, Gaius was deeply grieved. He faced it with reluctance, and finally had it thrust upon him against his will by the reckless folly of his subordinates. The responsibility, no doubt, must ultimately rest upon his shoulders. He might have retired to bide his time instead of fighting. But to do so was almost impossible. He was surrounded by excited partisans whom he could not control, and if he had gone back, he would have seemed to be betraying them to his and their enemies. The outburst of actual war and the reformers' dreadful end were melancholy but inevitable. End of section five.